When's the last time I told you that I love you all and thank God for the privilege of teaching and pastoring? I have the greatest job in the world. So let's come to God's Word together this morning, okay? You got your Bibles? Turn to Isaiah chapter 24. Isaiah 24. It's on page in your black Bibles at your feet. So if a novel or movie opened up with this apocalyptic scene, what would you think happened? The earth is desolate. Its surface is twisted and its inhabitants are scattered. Everyone from the highest to the lowest have been affected. Priests and people, bankers and beggars, maids and mistresses, everyone has been affected. The city is like a broken down wasteland. Every house has been boarded up. Riots fill the streets. And all that remains in the city is darkness and desolation. Now, if a novel or movie opened up with that scene, given that it's a novel or a movie, you would probably immediately assume that maybe there has been a nuclear holocaust, or maybe that doomsday asteroid finally hit the earth. Uh, Could even be an alien invasion. But this scene in Isaiah chapter 24 was not caused by an atomic bomb, an asteroid, or by an alien invasion. This worldwide desolation was caused by the Lord God of Israel himself. So our sermon text this morning is Isaiah's vision of the end of the world as we know it. It's often referred to as Isaiah's little apocalypse. And there's a lot of fascination, speculation, and let's be honest, fear about the end of the world. So rather than speculating, let's hear what God says about the end of the world as we know it here on planet Earth. Let's let's read what God says here today in Isaiah chapter 24 through 27. Yeah, I said that right. 24 through 27. That's four chapters. Now, hey, look, last week was 11 chapters, so this ought to be a piece of cake. You might ask yourself, why are you preaching such large pieces of Scripture at the same time? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, because this is a section of its own. 24 to 27 could be preached in a 100 sermons, but it is one distinct section of Scripture. And I want to just kind of give you an overview of chapter 24 through 27 this morning. It has one theme. The whole section is about the day of judgment on the whole earth. Now, this is an extension, even an elevation of last week. Do you remember last week? Chapters 13 through 23 was judgment on 11 nations that were representative of the whole earth. And we were at a a really high altitude at Google Earth perspective, but now we're even going to go higher in that satellite. And now we're just going to look down on the whole earth at one time. And here we see God's judgment of the whole earth. And this is no puny local deity. This is the Lord God of heaven and earth, the one who created it, the one who sustains it, the one who will judge it in the end. Because everything started with God, everything ends with God, and everything in the middle, friends, ought to be God's. In this particular section... 
there are seven descriptions of what the writer Isaiah calls the day of the Lord. We could structure our sermon by those seven descriptions. I'm not choosing to do that today. That would be a great sermon. Maybe you can outline your copy of of Isaiah's work that way. But I'm taking the task this morning to look at this in its poetic genre. This is actually one big chiasm. And a chiasm, you'll recall, is throughout Scripture, especially Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament. A chiasm is a poetic form where the beginning and end mirror each other, which emphasizes the middle. This particular chiasm um, has so much detail, and in fact, each one of the major sections, some of them form their own little chiasms. This is a beautifully um, designed section of Scripture here by the Holy Spirit and Isaiah. But I want you to look at your note sheet because uh, working off of Alec Motyer's uh, chiasm, the he word, I, I'm using Matir's, I've modified it some and, and come up with my own that makes more sense to me, and, and I don't pretend that it's perfect and it's certainly not comprehensive, but it is accurate. Your note sheet, you'll see that this chiasm begins with the desolation of the city and it ends with the harvest of God's people. And you'll notice that it goes from desolation to song to the overthrow of the rebellion, to a song. And then the middle emphasizes the feast on the mountain, back out to a song, the overthrow of the serpent, and a song out to the harvest of God's people. You can see how the beginning and the end mirror each other, and the emphasis, as we see it, is there in the middle. So for the purpose of, of this sermon this morning, I'm going to show you the big scenes of Isaiah's vision here. I'm going to follow this chiasm and I'm going to show you the big scenes of Isaiah's vision. But I really want to focus on those songs because my prayer for you is that as you see Isaiah's vision of the end of the world, it'll cause you to sing. When you think about the end of the world as we know it, Does it cause you to sing? Take a look at this chiasm with me, and we're going to see five major distinctive scenes from it. First of all, we notice that in the end, the Lord will desolate the city of man. We see that in chapter 24, verse 1 through 13. We've already alluded to it a bit this morning with that apocalyptic scene In the beginning, you can see that there in verse 1 through 6. In the end, the Lord is going to desolate what this particular section calls the city. So just like Dickens' classic novel, Isaiah 24 through 27 is the tale of two cities. Isaiah's vision portrays all of the inhabitants of the earth being the citizens of one of two cities. The city of man, which is a man-made city centered on man, created by human cleverness, free from the constraints of God's law. In this particular text, it's called the lofty city or the fortified city. Contrasted against the city of God, which theologian Graham Goldsworthy would probably described this way. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing. And it's never called the city of God, but it is called Jerusalem, and it is called Mount Zion, or the mountain of God. But like Dickens' classic novel, this is a tale of two cities. You see the city of man and the city of God. And in the end, what Isaiah's little apocalypse does is it shows us that the Lord, the Lord God of Israel is going to desolate the city of man. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. Behold, the Lord 
will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Drop to verse 10. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. Look at verse 12. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. Turn to chapter 25, verse 2. We see the city motif again. The city of man. Here in verse 2, it says, Of the Lord, for you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's place is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. And that lofty city, it's a lofty city now, but chapter 26, verse 5, chapter 26, verse 5, he has humbled the inhabitants of the lofty city. He, God, lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. In chapter 27, verse 10, just following this city motif out, the city of man, it says, the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken. This happened because the Lord God of Israel desolated it. Why did God desolate the city of man? The the human enterprise to set itself up for success against the Lord God of Israel. Why did God do that? Look back at chapter 24, verse 5 through 6, and we'll see why. He tells us in no uncertain terms. Chapter 24, verse 5 through 6, why did the Lord God desolate the city of man? Verse 5, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and a few men are left. The Lord has desolated the city of man because, verse 5, the inhabitants of the earth have transgressed the laws, violated the statues, and broken the everlasting covenant with God. If this were a mirror to show you your own heart, your own mind, your own life, Where does this leave you? When you look at this text, would you examine your own self and say, yeah, that's that's true of me. I have transgressed God's laws. I have violated God's statutes. I have broken the everlasting covenant with God. It's true of me just like it was true of them, which means that we deserve the same judgment that they do. See, friends, God, who is a just and righteous God, who can't just merely say, oh, that's okay, that was a little violation of my law. I'm just going to overlook that one. No, a righteous judge must, must judge accurately. And so God must pour out his judgment against every transgression, every violation, and every broken covenant. But here's the gospel. The judgment of God has already fallen against the sin of man. It's already happened, past tense, on a hill called Calvary, on a cross that belonged to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God's judgment against sin fell on Christ and every sinner who will come to Christ by faith can be forgiven of his sin and walk away clothed in the righteousness of Christ. For our sake, 
God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we can become the righteousness of God in him. There's our hope against the end when the Lord will desolate the city of man. Big scene number two. Notice on the chiasm that in the end, the Lord will overthrow evil. He doesn't just desolate the city of man, but he overthrows evil entirely. Now, who can do that? Who can rid the the earth of evil? And even if you just rid the earth, who can rid the entire universe, the spiritual world of evil as well? Only God can. But our God's big enough to be able to do that. So Isaiah's vision tells us that in the end, the Lord is going to overthrow evil in two ways. Two ways. Number one, he is going to overthrow the rebellion of man and the serpent who instigated it. Look in chapter 24, verse 21. First of all, the Lord overthrows the rebellion of man. Chapter 24, verse 21. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in the pit. They will be shut up in a prison and after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. God judges the demonic spirits in heaven, in heaven, he says, and he judges the kings of the earth, the the wicked kings of the city of man. He judges them on earth, and they're all going to be gathered up and punished in a pit. He overthrows the rebellion of man. Man rises up against him. God squashes the rebellion. Number two, look in chapter 26, verse 20 through chapter 27, 1. We're just going to read 27, 1. The Lord doesn't just overthrow the rebellion of man. He overthrows the one who instigated it. Now, where did the rebellion of man come from originally? You, you remember in the garden, right? Who instigated it? Chapter 27, verse 1, in that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Who is this Leviathan, the serpent, the dragon in the sea? It's not the stuff of fairy tales. Revelation chapter 12 and 20 says that great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He's the one who instigated the rebellion of man against God. And here in the end of the world, as we know it, the Lord will overthrow all evil by putting down the rebellion and slaying the serpent. Friends, That is our only hope against not just the evil out there, but the evil in here. We can't escape evil. We can only be delivered from it. And the only one strong enough to slay that dragon with his mighty sword is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, which he did on the cross. And he made an open spectacle of Satan and his hosts. The chiasm shows us a third emphasis. So after he desolates the city, after he overthrows the rebellion, then the Lord harvests his people. Now, throughout the text, there's harvesting. And I use the term harvesting not because it's my word, but because this uh, vision of Isaiah 
keeps talking about God bringing all of his people into his city in terms of gleaning. And interestingly, he doesn't, he doesn't talk about it in really sweet terms like picking apples or, you know, grain. He talks about beating the olive tree and having the, gra- the uh, olives drop off. And then God, look at this. Chapter 27, verse 12. Chapter 20, beating. So there's the judgment. See, all of this happens through judgment. Not just the judgment on everyone else, but God did this through the judgment of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God beat Him and allowed man to beat Him so that we could be harvested. Chapter 27, verse 12, in that day... From the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Notice that the Lord gleans his people from their enemies, Egypt and Assyria, with a great trumpet, which is the return of Christ to set up his kingdom and one by one. Isn't that so personal, so intimate? God knows his own. And he will redeem not just his people, but you. One by one. So the question. What will happen to you? On the day of the Lord. What will happen to you on that day that that great trumpet blows to call his people home to the city of God? Will you be harvested to come to God's city and worship on his holy mountain? Well, this chiasm, look at it again, points us to that great climax. Because on that mountain, in the end, the Lord will make a feast on his mountain. When God harvests his people from all of the nations and brings them to his mountain, chapter 25, verse 6, we've already read it this morning, but I want to read it again. Look at it in your copy. Chapter 25, verse 6. In the end, the Lord will make a feast on the mountain. 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. A feast full of marrow. Of aged wine, well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In the end, the Lord will make a feast on the mountain. And I want you to notice the five great works of God here mentioned in this text. Number one, the Lord makes a feast. Now look, God knows how to cause humans to look forward to something. When he describes the end, he says, 
It is going to be a barbecue like you have never been to before. Not just food and wine, but a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. God is whetting our palate for what's to come. You think this life is good? You think your grandkids are incredible? You wait till God makes a feast on the mountain. The Lord will swallow up the covering, the veil that is hiding His glory from all nations. The Bible tells us that the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Men are blind, but God will take away, swallow up that veil, that curse of blindness. And, oh, verse 8. The Lord will swallow up death forever. Isn't that fantastic imagery? Like the great divine black hole. God just swallows up death. Uh, Death, where is your sting and your victory? But death, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God who gives us that victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord will wipe away all tears. What tears? All of the sorrows of earth are gone. We're feasting on the mountain and there is no more sorrow, no more heartache about broken relationships, no more pain of disease, no more grief of death. It's all gone. And only God can do that. And on that day, read the response with me. Chapter 25, verse 9, on that day, it will be said, what? From God's people, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us and rejoice in his salvation. See, those who wait for God are completely dependent on him to save them. They know They cannot save themselves by their religious devotion or by their moral living or by their good works. The feast on the mountain of God is the image that Isaiah wants you to see most prominently, most mouth-wateringly. And friends, there at that feast, we will sing. This chiasm emphasizes four songs throughout, not just at the feast or after the feast, but this chiasm tells us that we will sing to the glory of God, and that's the fifth thing that I want you to see from this text. In the end, the Lord will desolate the city of man. He will overthrow evil. He will harvest his people. He will make a feast on the mountain. And he will be glorified in song. He will be glorified in song. One of the things that I found most interesting about this text was how much music there is. You expect the redeemed to be singing. But there are two surprises in this text. Let me show you one. Look at chapter 24, verse 8. Incredibly, the city of man The end of the age for the city of man is described as the day the music stopped. Chapter 24, verse 8. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. 
The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. When God desolates, decimates the city of man, the music stops. One more time, look at chapter 25, verse 5. The day the music stopped, 25, 5. Isaiah says of the Lord, you subdue the noise of the foreigners so that the song of the ruthless is put down. The ruthless are singing until God brings judgment and then their song is squelched. God's judgment is the day the music stops for the city of man. But for the city of God, it's full of the songs of the redeemed. There are four of them mentioned in this text. I want to look at them one by one. We will not spend a lot of time in each one dealing with four chapters as beautiful and as substantive as this only gives me in the limited time of this Sunday morning sermon the ability to overview it But I hope, like Isaiah is whetting our appetite for the future, I will whet your appetite to go back and read this text. Four songs mentioned here. Song number one is in chapter 24. I'm calling it the Song of the Survivors. Why? Look at chapter 24, verse 14 through 16. After that, beginning scene of absolute desolation of the city of man. Look at chapter 24, verse 14. They lift up their voices. So first of all, let's just stop right there and ask the question, who are they? Well, you go back to verse 6. The inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. So it's those survivors, the ones who have been spared from the judgment of God. In other words, his redeemed. They, verse 24, chapter, uh, verse 14, they lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise to the glory of the righteous one. This is a song of joy from the survivors. This must be how those men in the prairie under Dr. C.A. White's tutelage last week felt as they crouched in that charred space and the prairie fire raged around them. These are those who have been spared the fires of God's judgment and they're singing for joy. Do you see that in verse 14? They lift up their voices and sing for joy. What are they saying? We've been spared God's judgment. We don't deserve this mercy, but praise God. This song gives glory to the Lord because of His majesty. That's His sovereignty over the whole earth. This song is worldwide. Did you notice that it starts in the west, but then it echoes in the east? And the west calls to the east and says, give glory to the Lord. And then the east calls back to the coastlands and says, give glory to the Lord. This is an antiphonal praise all over the world by those who have been spared God's judgment. Yeah, friends, we'll sing because we, because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and nothing of ourselves have been spared God's judgment. We'll sing. And did you notice in verse 16? The song focuses on the righteous one. Now, that's interesting. It was Matir who pointed out that God's saving mercies are grounded in the satisfaction of his justice, not the expression of his love. 
They know they have been spared because God did a work of justice for them, not just compassion and love. It was justice and mercy that met at the cross and provided grace to all who will come to Christ by faith. He is the righteous one. And Romans tells us that when we come to faith by, uh, when we come to Christ by faith, that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is righteous to forgive sinners because his justice is satisfied in the cross of Christ. That means your eternal security has nothing to do with your performance and everything to do with the satisfaction of God over the sacrifice of his son and his righteousness. The song of the survivors is a song of joy. And then note, at the end of 16, 16b, it's contrasted immediately with, with grief from the prophet. The survivors are singing for joy and the prophet is seemingly conflicted here. 16b, but I say, Isaiah, I say, I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me. And then he continues with a warning to the readers. Look at verse 18. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. There is no escaping the, gu- the judgment of God. And Isaiah is preaching this sermon and warning the people because he still is there seeing their sin. Both are appropriate, friends, because Paul says that it's the terror of the Lord that persuades him to share the gospel and to make disciples. Song number two. Song number two. In chapter 25, the second song is the song about the ruined city. Let's read it. Chapter 25, verse 1 through 5. Seems like Isaiah is the one singing here because it's I, first person singular. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. What is he praising the Lord for? What? What has been the Lord's plan from old that's faithful and sure? Verse 2, for you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's place is a city no more. It'll never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of the ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. Isaiah, with this vision of the apocalypse, praises God for desolating the city of man. Praises God for it. A minute ago, he was just grieved over it, and rightly so. Judgment is grievous. And it's also glorious. Because everything God does is right. And so the prophet of God and the people of God alike can sing praise to God about his righteous judgment on wickedness. This is a song of triumph. God is triumphing over the rebellion of man. 
He has overthrown evil. He's made the city of man rubble. Notice in verse 4 and 5, did you see the three images? Isaiah praises God because he has been a stronghold in distress, shelter from a storm, and shade from the heat of man's fury. Who is he a stronghold and a shelter and shade for? The poor and needy. Let me just ask you. Are you poor and needy spiritually? Are you strong? Got your act together. It's only those who are poor in spirit that will receive the grace of God. Because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. The song of the ruined city is a song of triumph, friends. Here's the point. We don't have to wait till the feast on the mountain to sing. We can sing that now. God has already decisively decimated evil. And we can sing about his glorious triumph over his enemies even today. Song number three. We saw the song of the ruined city, but now here's the song about the strong city. Remember the chiasm parallels? It it mirrors each other. So the prophet sings one about the, the ruined city. And then notice in chapter 26, verse one, the people of God in Judah. Remember, Isaiah is written to the people in Judah where Jerusalem and the Davidic king line go. And it's the people in Judah who on that day are going to be singing about the strong city. What do you think the strong city is? It's Jerusalem. It's the capital city of God's kingdom on earth. King David's city, the city of God. So let's read the song about the strong city by the people of God. Uh, verse 20, chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He has Humbled the inhabitants of the height, that lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it. The feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. Isn't that beautiful? Just notice even that last line. God lays the city low, but whose feet are trampling it? the feet of the poor and the needy. Who are the poor and the needy? The ones that found shelter and stronghold because of the grace of God. This is beautiful. You got to go back and read this stuff again. Or we can just stay here all day and spend a lot more time. Just like we had a, a song of joy and a song of triumph, this is a song of trust. Did you note that theme there in the middle? See, the Lord has built a strong city and he secures our salvation in it. He opens it up to all who will come, how? By faith, verse 2. And then he keeps his people in perfect peace. He is an everlasting rock and he laid low the proud city. See, the security and peace within the strong city of God has been made available to us through Christ. And the key, how can we trust in God? Look there in verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. 
We can trust our everlasting rock, friends. God will triumph over his enemies. God will secure our salvation. But honestly, honestly, my soul is not always at peace about that. I feel fearful. I feel insecure. Do you? I have my doubts and my disappointments. And sometimes I am gripped with anxiety. God tells us here, he will secure us, keep us in peace. And who are they? Those who fix their mind on God. Just like a tractor beam. Fixing it on God. Trusting our sovereign father who does all things well, even the good things and the bad things. Trusting God, I can have peace. It's a good day, I can have peace. It's a bad day, I can still have peace. God's sovereign over it all. I feel the warfare of my enemies in, it's okay. They're defeated, ultimately, just keep fighting the war. I can have peace. Fix your mind. Stayed upon Jehovah. We're blessed. We can have that peace in our hearts as we fix our mind on Christ. A song of trust. Finally, song number four. This is the other surprise. Just like the city of man was described as the day the music stopped. Read Psalm number four. Isaiah chapter 27 verse 2. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. That's how I knew it was a song. In that day, a pleasant vineyard. All right, now we know that the vineyard is a metaphor for God's people. And we know that he uses that metaphor because he wants to grow good fruit from his vineyard. And we also know that Isaiah chapter 5 has already said that when God looked at his vineyard, he found nothing but what? Stink fruit. Sour grapes. Go back and read Isaiah 5 and be reminded. And because God's people didn't bear anything except for wild sour grapes, then he said, that's it, I'm done. And he bulldozed the place and started over with with a, a shoot that came out of that, the Lord Jesus Christ. What's that vineyard like in the end? Okay, first of all, we know that it is a pleasant, beautiful, sweet vineyard. Okay, chapter 27, verse 2. I'll stop giving commentary and let's just read the psalm. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone should punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Do you see who's singing? It's not us. The Lord God is singing over his vineyard. And he said, now I have redeemed it and restored it. I water it. I prune it. I'm doing everything necessary to make sure that it flourishes and it does. Did you see verse 6? The people of God fulfill the original mandate of God from the garden when God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And he told Noah that after the flood. And he told Abraham that when he made a covenant with them. And Israel that when they went into the promised land. And Jesus that. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. He that abides in me. 
will bear much fruit. This is a song of love. The love of God for His vineyard and friends. Everyone who is attached to Christ by faith is a branch on that vine. And I don't know what you think about the end, but here is my most reoccurring thought. I'm so afraid that I'm going to come up short that I didn't bear very much fruit. I'm so afraid that I'm going to stand before God and just hang my head and sh- But Paul says, he who began a good work in you will complete it on that day. And that it's not me, but it's Christ in me. And if I will just stay connected to the vine, God will do all of the work to water a poor wretched branch like me and prune me so that I too will bear fruit and be part of that pleasant vineyard over which he will sing. And that's true. We've got God's word on it. And that can make me sing today. Praise you for your grace. Praise you for your grace, Lord. If there's anybody who's part of our church community who is still part of the city of man. I pray that you would help them to see the danger that lies in the future. Your judgment against sin and rightfully so. And I pray that you would cause them to recognize that there is only one place where your judgment has already fallen. And if they will run there, they will find mercy and grace. Their sin will be forgiven And they will walk away new people, righteous in Christ. And for those of us who have come to Christ, poor and needy sinners, we thank you. I pray that the more we realize this good news, the more we would sing songs of joy and triumph and trust and recognize that sweetest song of all, that it's not how much we love you, but it's how much you love and delight over us. Praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.